keep within. And when they say, look here or look, there is Christ, go not forth, for Christ is within you. This is the Greek Bible study. We are reading the Gospel according to Mark, and we left off at verse 41 in chapter 9. I'd like to just go back for a minute and look at verse 35. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, There's something there that I think most modern people would miss here, not knowing Jewish culture at that time. He sat down. What do the apostles and his disciples often call him? How do they address him? Rabbi or master. Rabbi. Rabbi, and rabbi means teacher. When a teacher has something important to say, he sits down, and they will sit at his feet. When it says something like this, he sat down, that means he's got something serious to say. You see something similar in Matthew. If you look at the Beatitudes, look at the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. Similar kind mm -hmm. of thing. That's something you can miss if you don't know something about the culture. If you're just standing up and talking to them, that's one thing. But when he sat down, I've got something important I want to tell you. So I didn't want to skip over that. I'm not sure what else we could say here in, in this little section, 38 to 41, about this unnamed person who, not a follower of Jesus, but seemed to accept Jesus as being a powerful person, accepting him as a source for doing deeds of power in his name. I find that very interesting that Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. I thought that's interesting that it's put in a negative, whoever is not against us is for us. That there's a possibility that even though they're not a direct follower of Jesus, Let's go on to the next section here, 42 to 49. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Before we talk about that section, could we um, go back? I had a question in the previous section about the... Oh, the fine. Yes, I'm sorry. I forgot to ask uh, if anyone had any comments. I just wondered, was would that have been unusual in that culture what Jesus was saying about calling attention to children in that particular way in, in verse 37? 
Yes, in a sense, because children really didn't have any rights until they were older. You could also say women didn't have many rights either in the Jewish society of that time. So that this was, as it was unusual for Jesus to pick up a child like that and comment that you need to think like a child and have that innocence of a child to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Thank you. I was interested in that when you were talking about the difference also and culturally about sitting down. It made me think that those kinds of differences matter in these stories. Yes, they do. There's one big difference, too, in talking about women. It's somewhat unusual to have these women traipsing around with Jesus, too. That was sort of not a normal kind of thing. And again, I need to remind people that these 12 apostles and the other disciples there too, they all had their daily lives to live, and they weren't like with Jesus every minute, every day. That would have been impossible. They had families to take care of. I'm assuming either in this case, they were mostly farmers or fishermen and maybe some merchants among them. We know the occupations of some of them, like tax collector and Matthew and other things like that. And of course, even being a tax collector for the Romans was a kind of a despised kind of position in the eyes of most Jews, of course. Anything else in that section we did last week? What's the word for welcome? Because I'm just trying to picture how one would welcome a child in the name of Christ. What verse is it? The same one, 37. And what do you mean by welcoming him? Hold on, 37. Well, that's the word that just means receives, because I guess it means welcome too. Let me just look up something here. Receive, take, welcome, accept. So what would that consist in welcoming a child? And then now I'm wondering whether this is meant literally. There's another meaning to this word too. It means bear with. <laughs> and that's interesting. It says here it occurs in Second Corinthians 11.16. Maybe just look up that one and see. I repeat that no one think that I am a fool, but if you do, then accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. So there it's again, accept. So what I'm reading in my footnotes here are that a child was the lowest status person in the household. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess that this is perhaps a metaphor for accepting people who are in a weaker position or in a lower status position in the name of Christ. That's the kind of, I think, background I would think I'd have in the back of my head if I were to read that and hear that. If you remember one of the words for child, okay, let's see where, ice means child, and it also means slave, one of the words for slave as well. So that's kind of an interesting set of meanings for this word. And then what would that religiously consist in to welcome such a person? Taking them in as a Christian, or? No, no, I'm thinking more in terms of the society, a desert kind of society. Being in a very arid area, my understanding for not just Jews, but most desert people, they would welcome in anyone who came into their encampment just because of the nature of the terrain and that you'd even accept or uh, welcome a, a stranger or an enemy if they came into your, where you are at some oasis because that was the kind of hospitality that was expected of the cultures that were out there in, in the desert areas. Oh, so, so that's how reading this without knowing that is very confusing. I immediately assumed that this was welcoming someone into Christianity no. and so, or into this group of worshipers. Hmm. 
So. Henry, this discussion reminds me of Paul's letter to Philemon, in which he says, Onesimus was once your slave, but now I'm asking you to welcome him as a fellow Christian. Can I have that verse? Fortunately, Philemon is short. Yes, I think it's one chapter, right? <laughs> oh, I think I found it myself, maybe. 17, receive him as me. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. But it's a different word, a different verb. Ah, that's interesting. And let me just see if we're on the right track here. Let me look up that verb too. Basically, the root means to take or receive, so I'm pretty sure that's the basic meaning of it. Well, oh, at this, yeah, first meaning is welcome, accept, receive. So this is the word that means more specifically welcome, okay? Mm -hmm. Can we move on then to verse 42? Well, my English translation says here, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, I think that's a wrong translation of by translating it believe. I don't know if you recall in the past, I've talked about this verb, pistello. Mm -hmm. Let's get that. And that's usually translated as believe in most translations. But what it really means is to trust, put one's trust in, have confidence in. Jesus is not saying that these children believe in him. They're still kids. They wouldn't know what in the world that means. But the basic sense of this word, pistello, is to, to trust, to put one's trust in, to have trust in, have confidence in. And you can see these kids like Jesus and they trust him as an adult. They feel confident being with him. They feel safe. And that's more likely the sense that should be translated here rather than believe. Because what can you say about an eight-year-old child believing in Jesus, someone that maybe just barely knows, but then the sense of trusting in or having confidence in him, feeling good about him, that makes sense. Henry? Yes. Why does that misunderstanding persist? Why do they keep using the word believe rather than trust? I don't know specifically, Jack, but my one thought is perhaps believe in older English 300 years ago. King James, Shakespearean English may have had that sense that it no longer has. I don't know that. But there's so many of these words that have more than one meaning. And yet to me, it's unfortunate in a number of cases that it seems to be the wrong choice that's made in translating that word. I was just wondering what their motive was, whether somehow the use of the word believe fits their agenda better than trust. Yeah, I think in some cases they may be right about that. Here, though, it just wouldn't make any sense. This little kid named Jack believes in Jesus. Let's say this kid's eight years old, and what does that mean that he believes in Jesus? It doesn't have any real sense. And yet, if you could see a little kid who might be fearful of a lot of strangers, but doesn't feel that way to Jesus, then you can understand that they trust Jesus, they have confidence in him, feel safe with him. Henry, this is David. I want to look at what is the main verb there, because I'm looking at three different translations that come out quite differently, starting with the King James Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, etc. New Revised Standard Version says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones. And today's English version says, if anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose his faith. 
that last one too. What, what's again, the I main think. verb? And yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that isn't even the main verb. The main verb coming up is the word "is." <laughs> it is better. Oh. <laughs> it means to put a stumbling block, but actually, "scandalos" means something else too. I mean, which is a uh, what do you call it? A, a, a stone, a rock, a pebble. Scandalos. How do you get a band out of that? Okay, scandalon, basically, whoops, that look like an English word? Sure. Scandal. You got it. Scandalous. Scandal. <laughs> Scandal, yeah, it's an obstacle. Okay. That which causes stumbling or trouble, that which uh -huh. causes sin, that which gives occasion for sin. Could it be just simply putting temptation in their way or something like that? Mm. Well, that might be one possibility. I have a question. Does anyone see like scratch marks on the screen? Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm just wondering if I did that somehow and didn't know it. What What is the um, word for little ones here? I know that we're sort of assuming that this this harks harkens back to 37, um, but there is 38 between the two, and I'm wondering if he literally is talking about children still. Oh, okay, let, let me finish this first. This is the verb scandalizo, and basically cause someone to sin or to anger or shock even. I think that those readings are stronger than what King James had. Yeah. Offend <laughs> can sound less ominous than... Um, it also causing, has the sense give cause someone to give up his faith, to be led into sin, to fall into sin. It has it, you can see it's got a whole range of meanings. They're more or less related. But let me just see how I I don't know why I have these scratch marks here and how to get rid of them. So whoever causes one of these little ones, and that's just an adjective little, probably know this root from English too means little, you know, micro. Mm -hmm. so, uh -huh. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, to make a mistake, these little ones who have, tr who have put their trust in me, who trust me, it is better for him rather if they... And then it's interesting here in the Greek, my translation just says a, a millstone, but the Greek says a millstone of a donkey. And I've don't know what's the difference between a donkey millstone and other millstones. <laughs> well, and also, then we get into this next session. I don't. Uh, Henry. Yes. I wonder if they had a large stone on the ground. Yeah. That was uh, enough to keep a donkey in place that they would tie a donkey to. Yeah, I would assume this had to be big enough so that you would need a donkey to move it around rather than something that maybe a person could move. Well, a, reg uh, a regular sort of hand mill would be sort of like a little millstone that you yeah, yeah. turn around with your hand, and then a donkey one would be one that the donkey actually would walk in a circle. That's what I'm assuming. Yeah. Not just a little millstone around your neck, but a really big one. Yeah. Right? And then we go into this interesting thing about, let me get back to my English here better that he were thrown in the ocean with a millstone around his neck or if your hand causes you to stumble cut it off better into life maimed with one hand and two and so forth this is interesting this is what you call hyperbole 
I mean, you find it even today in Jewish humor, exaggeration for an effect. I hope no one takes these verses literally. Actually, when I was living in Berkeley, when I, went, when I went to Berkeley as an undergraduate, there were and still are a lot of homeless people um, on Telegraph Avenue. And one fellow, who I presume is not there anymore, um, had done that. He'd actually cut off one of his hands and removed one of his own eyes because he took it literally. Unfortunate. That's even then it occurred to me that was not a biblical passage to take literally. I had notes previously on this that said the reference to the hand, foot, and eye are all common agents of temptation. You know, your hand you can steal or hit, and your foot can stray you off the path, and your eye, visual temptations. So I think they're basically talking about these things can um, work against you if you don't have them under control. Right. This conversation reminds me, I remember some years ago, I don't know if it was in Afghanistan or somewhere, but there was some young guy who I gather was caught stealing on two different mm -hmm. occasions. And on one occasion, they cut off one hand. And on the other occasion, they cut off a foot on the other side. This was the law. And again, taking something very literally on, and it's just unbelievable, but that happens even in modern times. There is the question is how we should take this religiously. I mean, it's still there. I mean, we're still supposed to understand it somehow. Well, Jesus is sitting down here, so he's saying something important. Don't be the cause or the agent that causes one of these kids, these young children, or anyone to sin. I meant the following verses. Oh, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. Get there. Well, the, you, the ones about cutting off your hand and so on. I have a comment if we're still on 43. It's the first. Yes, of, we are. Um, we're still there. Yeah, it's, I want to look at hell. We're going to look at that next. Three, three or four times, yeah. Okay. okay. This is an interesting thing, too. There's actually no specific word in Greek of this time for well, hell. The word in Greek here is the name of a place just outside the walls of Jerusalem, Gehenna. And that was a dump. And of course, there was probably a smoldering fire there a lot of the time. Henry, wasn't that the Valley of Hinnom? You, so gonna, is, uh, you, you're coming yeah. ahead of me, too. That's, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. That's the Valley of Gehenom. Isn't there somewhere in the Midwest some kind of fire underground and some coal seam that's been going on for like decades it's just pennsylvania pennsylvania yeah i mean never ending well which earlier was the uh it was called the valley of Gehinnom, and that's where i understand that babies perhaps were sacrificed at an earlier time in a pagan religion i mean it was a place that was not considered a nice place by any jews whatsoever and there is no specific word in greek for hell the one you often find here is reference to Gehenna. You'll end up in, the, in this dump with the smoldering fire. Another word that's very common is this word. And you've probably seen this word. In English, it's the same word, Hades, which is the abode of the dead in Greek. So those are the most, two most common words that for some reason get translated as hell, but that's really not quite what's being said there. Hades, and then uh, this abode of the dead was a translation of the Hebrew Sheol, which is again is the abode of the dead. I'm not sure how Hebrew is spelled. 
I think that's one common spelling. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Now, again, I should just make another comment here. The English word hell, that's related to another word in English. Anyone guess that? All. It's the same root. And you see it in ancient Norse mythology, Valhalla. Oh, yeah. A boat of the dead for, I guess, warriors or whatever. And so this vaulted place or whatever. Any other questions about those words? Well, my comment is that far too many, <laughs> I mean, in my view, within the broad Christian family, have a doctrine of hell as a place of never-ending physical torment rather than of utter destruction. That's an important thing, because when you have this word fire in Greek, you probably know this word, in terms of the thinking at that time, fire had totally destroyed something, in terms of there's nothing left but ashes. I mean, if it's an eternal fire, it's an everlasting fire, fire that never goes out, there's nothing left. There's just total just destruction the of whatever. I'm sorry? I'm saying it's like Sarah? a fire that just leaves the dross, you know, it purifies you. Yes, now that's that's the other sense in terms of fire can separate the pure metal that you're looking for from the dross, from the other metals that are not wanted. You have those two senses of, of fire. Of course, when you're reading the New Testament here, or even the Old Testament, you should be thinking of which aspect of fire are they looking at. Obviously here, it would seem to be that this is one in terms of total destruction. I think it's in First or Second Thessalonians, it talks about the lake of fire. Again, obviously, I don't think that has the sense of purifying, that it basically is, you become extinct. I'm trying to think of that verse. Does anyone know what I'm referring to in Thessalonians? If God no longer is upholding you, you no longer exist. And that's the most tragic thing, I think, for any human being, that there's utterly nothing left, perhaps. Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, yeah, 7, 8, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, permanent death. That is the second death. If you recall in the book of Revelation, it talks about a second death. There's the first death, the physical death, and then there's the second death, this eternal destruction. Separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So I think this is what we're talking about, the same thing here, this eternal destruction. Somewhere else here, it mentions this lake of fire, too, either in First or Second Thessalonians. But that's this eternal destruction. And this is what I think was so important in terms of why friends and missionaries in general have gone out to make people believers. Go ahead. You going to say something, David? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, the reason I wanted to bring this up is that I've long ago lost count of how many people renounce Christianity because of preaching, usually very dramatic. We have the phrase, preaching up fire and brimstone, trying to scare them with the prospect of never-ending torture. <laughs> and 
I think that, well, in the first place, you don't, you don't scare people into virtue. Or if so, it's uh, probably the wrong reason. It also is based not on a good biblical understanding of what this utter destruction meant, rather than eternal doesn't mean <laughs> the suffering of being burned goes on forever. On the face of it, and taken with that kind of motivation for conversion, I think I would find it, I think other people find it utterly disgusting, something you would really want to run away from. So to get away from that by looking at what were the understandings within Hebraic culture and the literal meanings of these words and the difference, the difficulty of going from Hebrew to Greek to English, this might help <laughs> reassure folks that the ultimate torture <laughs> uh, is not the basis of our religion. Let me say one other thing, because I, I just better mention this in terms of, of course, you can see that you have these two choices here, and that seems to be what you have in the New Testament. But there's been a further understanding, even in, among the ancient Jews, too, that perhaps you might think of this purifying fire occurs after death as well. And this gives rise to the concept of a purgatory, purgation, mm -hmm. so that among some Christians, they have this understanding of purgatory. But friends have not thought in that way because I think their understanding has always been that without a body, you can't make any further choices or changes or anything in your life. It's not like we continue to have multiple lives like reincarnation or something, but that you only go around this one time. And so you need to be serious about what you do this one time. So I'm just mentioning that because I think you've got purgatory or this Eastern concept of reincarnation. You don't get it right this time, you come back again and you keep trying until you get to this final state of nirvana or, or heaven. But again, that's, that's why I think we get these various kinds of thoughts about these things. If the fire is eternal and the worm never dies, you can certainly see why someone might read the text that way. I would personally prefer to put my reliance in the nature of Christ and God as I understand them, not by looking at these passages with precision, but with an understanding of what I just think Christ and God are like. Yeah, I mean, even thinking, I mean, fire and worms are both physical creations. You can't be talking about physical fire or physical worms eating at your body forever after you're dead. I think we can only look at what has been written here in the Bible in some understanding of how this was understood by Jews at that time in the first century and earlier. But it seems like there's been a lot of thinking by Christians since then going in directions and ways that are really at variance with what Jesus was actually saying and what his listeners were hearing and understood in their culture. But the most important point is that you have to take life seriously in what you're doing now. That's what's absolutely important. You just can't say, oh, I'm, I can get rid of all these other sins in purgatory, or I'll come back a second time and do it better the second time, or the fifth time, or the tenth time. No, you only go around once, as they say. I'm going to stop my harangue with this remark. I think too many people on this issue get their doctrine from the Italian poet Dante. <laughs> and he might have been a wonderful poet, but I don't think he was an adequate theologian. Well, actually, Dante got it from some medieval and early Christian writings that were not canonical, but I'm trying to remember what that was called, the Apocalypse of Peter, where you have these more physical imagery that you have here that basically had a huge influence on Christians' thoughts for centuries.
But again, the most important thing is you just can't rely on God to save you, to heal you, if you don't take it seriously as to how you should be living now. That's what's absolutely essential here. Henry? Yeah? I have a note here um, that that clause was not originally, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, was not originally in Mark's Gospel, but it was taken from Isaiah 66, 24, which says the exact same thing. Yeah. They feel that it was added. Yeah, I, I have something similar to that. But even then, why did they take it? They felt yeah. there was something similar. Unofficial, yeah. Yeah. To maybe whatever scribe was writing, copying this, this gospel according to Mark, was thinking that this would even make it clearer what we're talking about here by adding that from Isaiah. I, I'm just speculating about that. A mm-hmm. couple of other things I want to say here too. In verse 43, you have the expression enter life. And in verse 47, you have kingdom of God. In the gospel according to John, this is the most common expression in terms of here in Mark, we have kingdom of God. But in John, you most often have life or eternal life. These are equivalent terms. Entering into into life, entering into the kingdom of God. That's important to know that these three terms, zoe, life, or zoe, ionios, eternal life, or basileia, tutheu, kingdom of God, we're talking about the same thing. One other term would be the kingdom of heaven. Um, We call it kingdom of heaven, but literally it's kingdom of the heavens. So you've got here basically four different ways of saying the same thing. And again, kingdom of God, kingdom of the heavens, kingdom of heaven, eternal life, life. We're talking about that state of being that is a divine state where God is, and that is being joined to God. This life is eternal life, and the kingdom of God is this divine state of God that hopefully we should strive to enter into while still alive. But that would be the final state after our first death, and hopefully only death. So you find all of these verses, as again I was saying in uh, the Gospel according to John, Zoe and Zoe Ionios are the terms basically used almost solely in the Gospel according to John, except in chapter 3, where Nicodemus asks about how to enter into the kingdom of God. But in the other Gospels, you find this variation of words. Here we have life and we have kingdom of God almost juxtaposed to each other here in verses. We're unknown there, Basileia, tone, or unknown. Uranos is the word for heaven or sky. And that gives us our English word Uranus, the name of the planet. In Zoe, that's the same root that you see in zoology, the study of life. Ionios is related to the English word eon, E-O-N. We get that word from ion, or the noun form of this ionios. And theu, God, that's related to theology, the study about God. Again, remember Jesus said no one can get into the kingdom of heaven unless they become like one of these innocent children. No one can enter into that state, consciousness, even before death, unless they are Their lives, their actions, their words, their thoughts are all innocent and pure. It's something to strive for. 
And that's actually one of the primary foci of Quaker worship. As again, with repentance, this major change necessary in terms of changing the whole way that you think and live, and then focusing it in that state of worship. We'll say more about this in the future here too, I'm sure. All right, any questions, comments? We're about finished for today. So I'll get those notes to you guys sometime in the next day or two. So I'll say good night. Okay. Enjoy your evening. Yes, we're all done. So hopefully <laughs> I'll see all you guys next week. See you tomorrow. Happy oh, birthday. Come tomorrow, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Good night. Take care. Keep within. And when they say, look here or look, there is Christ. Go not forth, for Christ is within you. And those who try to draw your minds away from the teaching inside you are opposed to Christ. For the measures within, and the light of God is within, and the pearl is within you, though hidden. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from George Fox's 19th Epistle in 1652. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.